most people with dementia, most of the time they have dementia, are walking about, they're in the community, they're sitting on a bench in your park, they are going to the church picnic, they are at the family birthday party and wedding. Can we not embrace them? Can we not make them feel fully part of what we're doing and welcome? And wouldn't you want that? Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I talk with fascinating, talented, and inspiring guests who reflect on the adventures and challenges of aging and who are living their lives with vibrance and purpose. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist, writer, and fellow Zestful Ager. I want to invite you to my brand new free webinar, Zestful Aging, Here's How You Do It. You can sign up at NicoleChristina.com. And as always, I appreciate your feedback. Well, I have my Jack Russell Terrier Sparky right beside me and my coffee in my hand. So let's begin. Today we're speaking with Tia Powell, author of the brand new book, Dementia Reimagined. Despite being a physician and a bioethicist, she was not prepared to address the challenges she faced when her grandmother and then her mother were diagnosed with dementia, not to mention confronting the hard truth that her own odds aren't great. Dr. Powell's goal is to move the conversation away from an elusive, exclusive focus on cure, also elusive, to a genuine appreciation of care, what we can do for those who have dementia, and how to keep life meaningful and even joyful. Welcome to the show, Tia. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Talk a little bit about how your book, Dementia Reimagined, came about. Like so many people, there is dementia in my family. So, you know, it kind of arrives right in front of you and you can't very well ignore it. In my particular case, not only, you know, I'm a physician, so obviously I learned about this in medical school and medical training. But what really got my attention was not that. It's that first my grandmother and then ultimately my mother both had dementia. And really having a front seat in looking at the illness and the consequences of it for these two important people in my family really made an impression on me. And I'll also say that after my mother died um, several years ago, you know, my father had already died. And it's that moment when you're a middle-aged adult, you lose your parents, which is not at all uncommon, when you start to think, oh my goodness, I must be the grown up now. <laughs> what, what am I doing here? How did that happen? So it made me think, what is the thing that I haven't done that would be important for me to do? I'm getting older. I appreciate that, you know, mortality is in store for me one day. What, what's something that's important to me? And that really made me kind of face directly the question of dementia. What does psychiatry have to say about this? What does bioethics have to say about this? What do I think? And I hadn't really thought enough about it. So that really got me started on what would be a thing I could do here? What, what, what do I think would be helpful to me? Certainly, and I'm sure this is true for you too, I have so many friends and acquaintances where they're either themselves worried about dementia, or there's someone in their family, and they ask a lot of questions. And I realized, you know, my training as a physician 
didn't really put me in a very good place to help them. So I mm -hmm. began to think about what would what would be more helpful. And I, I'm not sure I'm there yet, but I'm trying to move in that direction. So what were you doing um, as your mom and, and grandmother were ill? You were seeing patients as a psychiatrist. What what was your job prior to this? Right. I'm an academic physician, so um, I don't now actually have my own private practice in psychiatry, although I did then when my grandmother and my mother were ill. I had um, my own practice where I would see patients. I worked always in big hospitals, um, going around and seeing. I'm a consultation liaison psychiatrist by training, so I used to see patients in the hospital, in the regular medical hospital, either because they had psychiatric symptoms as a result of medical illness or a consequence, or they had major psychiatric illnesses but then would get breast cancer. So it might be, here's a person who's psychotic, we're trying to get her through a breast cancer treatment, how do you deal with that? Oh, or here's a person who's had a major stroke and she's depressed, what, what do we do about that? So it was a very different kind of practice, but I've also been working in bioethics all through that time. So I would get uh, called to do a consultation. We're not sure what's the right thing to do here. You know, not about a technical issue, what drug to use, but, but more, what are we doing? How can we help this family? The physicians and the family are in disagreement about what's the right kind of direction for treatment. So all of those things together kind of you know, contributed to what I wanted to do. And I've always done a lot of teaching and thinking. So that's it. First of all, that's just incredibly fun. But it also gives you an opportunity to kind of pull together what you see in the real world, in the hospital or in your community and think about what is it that, you know, somebody who's learning about the health professions needs to know about this? What do I need to to draw their attention to? How can I get them interested in the questions that remain unanswered? So it doesn't sound like you had, well, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you hadn't gotten jaded. You hadn't necessarily felt stagnant in your career and were looking for some kind of meaning or purpose. No, I don't think so. I, I've had uh, generally, I mean, you know, I, um, I do like to do different things. I am, mm. you know, like one of those dogs that likes to sort of bounce around and like you know, <laughs> running over here and running Jack, over there. Jack Russell Terrier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. A terrier is definitely part of my, you know, my spirit animal, I would say. <laughs> well, I have one sitting right beside me, so I well, know there you about go. that. Right, so, exactly. so I see because, you know, as you know, oftentimes what will happen is, you know, middle-aged, post-middle-aged people get a little bit... Uh, uh, you know, it gets a little stale, and then they're looking for the next project, and this, you know, presents itself. But it doesn't sound like that's how it happened for you. You were fully in your career. You were bouncing around doing interesting things. But then this really literally landed on your doorstep. Yeah, and I think it was also, you know, as I was saying, sort of the loss of my mother was created a natural moment for reflection. Like, is this time to take stock and think about, do we keep going the same direction or would this be the time to have a sort of inflection in the career path? And I thought that it was time. Mm -hmm. And so you started researching or how did this, how does it start? What's the, what are the first steps? Because the history that you cover about how the U.S. and the world uh, have uh, dealt with 
older folks is so detailed and so researched and so thorough and interesting. I mean, it's not like you just, you know, kind of fit that into your your busy day. It sounds like you really had to drop some things and pursue this. That is true. And I, I didn't even start really with the history. Um, I was able to do a couple of things. One is that um, since I teach, I was able to say, okay, let's do a course in dementia. That'll be 12 weeks. Each week will be a different topic or session. So, you know, get busy, find 12 different things. So, you know, you start with that and you start, it, it makes you, it gives you a little, um, you know, kick where it is needed to start start reading, make yourself an organized program of study, start in with that. So that's kind of the first step. I'm a nerdy academic. That's the first step for a nerdy academic. Mm -hmm. And then I also was able to apply for a really interesting fellowship. Um, and for all your health professional colleagues, I really recommend that they check out the Health and Aging Policy Fellows. So mm. they, they take you for a year and you can do it in residence in Washington, D.C. Or if you live near enough, you can sort of travel. And that's what I did. I went back and forth spending, you know, a month at one point in D.C. and then coming back and forth. But they will take somebody who has their own expertise and then assign you to some branch of the federal government. So they assigned me to Health and Human Services and I got to work for a really important um, piece of that called the National Alzheimer's Project Act. So basically the government gets a free staffer with some expertise and you get to see what's the government up to? What are they doing? What do they mm. think about this? Where are they? Where do they think the gaps are? Where are they really strong? So that also was kind of part of my education. So I did that for a year. And then it was really only after that that I thought, huh, you know, everybody keeps saying that dementia was sort of discovered really first at the turn of the 20th century and then again in the 1970s. So, okay, I'm sure that's true. Let me figure out how that happened. But I, I basically fell in love with the history part and I just went down this rabbit hole and I, I went through every issue of what was originally called the American Journal of Insanity. Yes, I saw that. <laughs> it's oh just wild. And right. it's just, you can't put it down. It is a total page turner. I mean, it's part of it is horrifying. The completely unquestioned, essentially racist stereotypes presented as straight up science. Like, mm -hmm. you know, why are Jews so anxious? Like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, <laughs> like you know, it's just you're reading what, how were people in the 19th century, you know, and then throughout, how were they thinking about what you know became dementia? How were they even thinking about mental illness? So, I had to really, you know, occasionally slap myself on the wrist, saying, "Okay, that's not really about dementia," but you know, I would limit myself to one off-topic article per day. Most people <laughs> are scrolling through Facebook, and you're scrolling through the American Journal of Insanity saying, one more, just one more, and then I have to go to bed. Exactly. Well, and I also had a team every summer, My our Center for Bioethics takes in um, a small number of research assistants, and, I, and all of them got the bug, too. I mean, they just went wild, these really bright college students running into me going, you're not going to believe this, you know. Um, so that was really fun. So they got into it, and we would all be doing it and talking about it. I just, you know, 
really just fascinating. Just for our audience, um, because I know your book is is still in pre-order, am I right? Correct, yeah, yeah it comes okay, out April so, 2nd. Okay, I just wanted to sort of give a few examples of, you know, shackles, blistering, drowning. Do you want to, do you want to give any more um uh, examples of how people were treated who were showing either psychiatric symptoms or dementia symptoms? Yeah, it's just, it's really heartbreaking to read about it. I mean, part of the reason that I end up looking a lot at mental health is that everybody with mental health symptoms, including everybody with dementia, we're all kind of lumped together. Just you are all the people, there's just something wrong with all of you. And it's really not interesting or important to figure out what that is you're just you're just wrong and essentially it was really hard to distinguish treatment from punishment everything that was done to punish people punish felons punish mm -hmm. bad people that's what was thought for the most part in the early years that that's what we should do to these people with mental health issues you're yelling or you're sort of pointing in the air and looking at things we can't see that's all wrong and probably the thing to do would be to tie you up so you can't point, so you can't, you know, or make it so no one can hear you yelling. And it just, you know, I don't want to, we see things differently in part because of the contributions of those who came before. So I don't want to demonize the past, but man, it was tough to be different back then. Do you think that there's a, um, Something about the human psyche and this idea of otherness and this fear, like we're going to put as much distance between what who you are, what you're doing, and what I am, and I never want to be in that, you know, in that camp. I mean, what what leads somebody? Even they they didn't understand it. They didn't have you know the electron microscopes they didn't have all of you know what we have now but why go punitive it's a really interesting question and i think you're absolutely right that it has to do with otherness there's something really terrifying about seeing someone kind of lose it mentally right and and we are all aware that at some point, no matter how great your mental health is, at some point you have felt yourself get close to the edge and you have known how frightening that feels. Mm -hmm. So if you look at someone who from your point of view is well over the edge, you think, oh, that could be me. Mm -hmm. I don't want to think about that. Let's like that. We just have to like get that person out from view. We got to really like shut that down right now. So I think it is because we're frightened. And, you know, unfortunately, I don't think that that response is limited to the 1600s. Mm -hmm. We see it today, absolutely. Mm -hmm. We see somebody who's frightening, or actually, we don't really see them. We kind of think we know about people who are different. If you really look at any human being, for the most part, you'll see how like yourself they are. And I don't know if that will make you comforted or not, but, you know, when we demonize someone from a different faith or somebody from a different mm. sexual orientation mm -hmm. or, or whatever it is, a different mm -hmm. country, we're sort of pretending they're completely different from us. That's, it's just not accurate. 
it, it's something that we do because we're frightened. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what that does for us. I wish I could solve that. I'm unlikely to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. But man, is it a problem. And when you, you know, obviously that affects us in the larger societal realm. But when you look at it in the context of health, well, that's something maybe we can do something about. That's not mm -hmm. helpful. Punishment mm -hmm. is not treatment. And really kind of catching hold of that message has taken a long time to get through. And in some sense, we're still working on that. I mean, we have made huge strides. We certainly don't blister people's skin or beat them, you know, as part of an official medical regimen anymore. But we do hide people away. And we do, we do use chemical restraints. We do sedate people who are calling out, who are agitated with dementia. And maybe sometime that's the last resort, that's all that's left. But why do we start with that? Why don't we start with, and, and some people are trying to figure out, what else could you do? Maybe they're in pain. Maybe they're frightened. Mm -hmm. How else could I reach out to somebody? What would not be starting with punishment? What would be starting with, wow, you're a person just like me and I, I see your suffering. So let me think with you. Let me look at you, gaze at you and figure out what, what mm -hmm. could I do? Is there something in my power that would make you feel better? Let me know you. Yeah. Mm. So what would you like to see? If you could sort of wave a magic wand and change the way we treat our uh, people with a dementia diagnosis, what would it look like? I love that question. I think that's really sort of the core of my book. You know, let's get out the magic wand. <laughs> where, where, where can we go with it first? You know, where yeah. will we go with it next? So I, I think I would start the magic wand before people even get dementia. So, so many people in our community are terrified that they'll get dementia. And actually, one of the first questions I often get from people is, don't you think that people who are diagnosed with dementia either should kill themselves or really that's my plan. That's what I would do right away. And I, you know, my answer is, look, I, I, I don't want people to suffer. I get it. You're frightened, but is that really our best answer? Is that the mm -hmm. best thing we can do for you? You know, you're right. You're broken. Get out of here. Mm -hmm. That how Boy, that sounds like some historical, uh, solutions we don't want to go back to exactly exactly i mean is that really the best we can do as a society with our level of knowledge and and resources i mean if somebody wants to do that as a psychiatrist i'm always saddened by suicide but i also appreciate listen that's been around since the beginning of mankind and some people will do that what i would like is to have there be better alternatives let's see if there's something worth it that makes you genuinely want to stay around. So I don't want people when they hear the word dementia to think about that's the worst thing in the world. I just don't want to go there. I'd, I'd like us to, to, again, if you gaze fully at dementia, first of all, people picture the end stage. They picture somebody mute and unable to move and in bed. Mm. And, and that may be the way dementia ends, but dementia takes 10, 12 years. Most people with dementia, most of the time they have dementia, are walking about, they're in the community, they're sitting on a bench in your park, they are going to the church picnic, they are at the family birthday party and wedding. Can we not embrace them? Can we not make them feel 
fully part of what we're doing and welcome. And wouldn't you want that? If you were sort of having a, if you can imagine yourself at the very beginning of dementia, you're sort of beyond the regular middle age. Ooh, I know that person. I cannot remember her name. Take it one step further. Like everybody is a little bit like that. Is that my cousin? Is that my daughter? Is that my, you know, whoever? Um, everybody's a little bit like, mm, looks familiar, can't quite place you. Wouldn't it be great if you could go about the world and feel that it was comforting to you, that the people who knew you around you would be happy to see you, would try and make your life still a place where there could be joy? Because really, every life should have joy. So how that can we do that? That you're still welcome. That you're yeah. still welcome here. Yeah. How can I help you? How can I help you have a, a life where you feel you're part of this family, this community, where there could be some joy, and and couldn't we do that? Now, I have to say, when I, you know, looking at the title of my book, all this stuff about building a life of joy and dignity, there are people who look at me like I have really lost my mind. Do you know what I mean? I mean, dementia is hard. There is loss. So I'm not pretending that you should be like really excited and happy if you get the diagnosis of dementia or your partner does. It is hard. It's absolutely tough. And I, I in no way want to beat up on caregivers and say it's not enough all the work that you do you should also be happy about it <laughs> it's you know i'm not saying that at all but i do want to to get the conversation to go in the direction of how can we support that caregiver how can the rest of the community how can we all think about this differently in such a way that it's not only okay it, we embrace all sorts of people including people who we've known for decades and who now are becoming a little bit different. Are you asking people, though, to be more evolved than we are now, going back to this whole question of the other? It seems like what we're, what you're asking is for us to address our own fear and somehow you know, tolerate that discomfort and say, yes, I'm afraid of getting a diagnosis of dementia, but I can still be here with this person in an open and giving way. I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, I think that what I am asking for is to have people confront their fears about mm -hmm. aging, about disability, about not being as smart as you used to be. Um, and I'm like a total snob about being smart. I, you know, loved school. So I, I'm not saying, oh, yeah, like I'm totally unattached to, to my <laughs> cognitive skills. It's not like I'm a medical school professor. Oh, wait, I am. You know? <laughs> like, so, right, uh, right. so it's not like I find that so easy. But I think, um, you know, there are a lot of people that are encouraging people to confront their thoughts about death. So we have like death cafes, oh, you know, yes. so interesting. Mm -hmm. So yes, I think it falls in that general camp that mm -hmm. what makes, if you take the example of a scary movie, what's super scary is the stuff you can't see, like the bad guy hiding behind the door and like the innocent care character sort of wandering into the house and she can't see him. So I want you to look at dementia. I want us to really understand what it is, to think about it, even to try it on for size. Think about what you would want if you go that direction, and a lot of us will. So, you know, what would your home need to look like? How would you change that? 
What community would be supportive of you? How can you make some changes that would make you live happily with dementia? And how can we help our other family members, ourselves, and just people generally? Because, man, it's going to be a lot of us. Mm -hmm. You're asking us to face something that's really difficult to face. Correct. Yeah. And I think that is hard. On the other hand, you know what? It's coming our way. Mm-hmm. So it's not, you know, as with death, of course, it's not like you can really dodge that bullet, you know, it's yeah. ultimately, you know, it's something like we live longer now. Many of us will live into the 80s, into the 90s. I mean, and I don't know if everybody appreciates what a big change that is. When we set the retirement age at 65, like in the early, early 1900s, we started thinking about that. People live to 65. Right. We, that's like dying young in America today, right? That's, you know, yeah, we're gonna live into our ninth. Yeah. Yeah, 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 the demographics are totally different. So mm-hmm. at 85, our chances are, you know, for getting Alzheimer's disease, probably at least 30%. If you add in the other dementias, 40, maybe even more than that percent. So if you're gonna live a long time, and I hope we all do, your chances of living with a number of disabling conditions, including dementia, are pretty high. Do you think the government has a role in helping us address these realities? I, I think we all have a role. I do think the government has a role, absolutely. Right now, the government pays for most nursing home care. Most of that is covered by Medicaid, which is the state, you know, it's a sort of hybrid of federal and state money, but it's basically the program for the poor, which is kind of sobering because it's you know, it brings up a number of things. One is that a lot of older people do fall into the category of the poor. They are impoverished. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a very complicated set of issues. But it's also true that paying for full tilt dementia care is beyond the budget of most Americans. If you really need full time paid care, if you are in the late stages of dementia, you're probably not going to be able to stay at home, or you may not be. And it's also true that a lot of people in their 80s live alone, right? And that's, it's not feasible to live on your own and be bedbound. That's just, that's not a thing. Mm-hmm. That's neglect. That's mm-hmm. abuse. So we got to figure out something to do. And I don't think that, you know, you can qualify for Medicaid, but states are cutting back on Medicaid. It's expensive. Nursing home care is expensive. So I think that the whole nation has to figure out this is going to be millions of people we don't want this to be just a horrible misery i think it's going to take a lot of policy a lot of thinking about prudent use of funds so i do think the government plays a role Mm -hmm. meanwhile it's not like it's only the government now where it ever will be only the government most care for most people with dementia is provided at home and the majority of it is unpaid family members. Mm-hmm. So we're already doing that. I mean, families are totally maxed out. So it's not like it's never occurred to families like, oh, I, I should do something without government support. I mean, they're like, <laughs> that's like, that is happening, man. That is really already pretty much to the max. Mm-hmm. And, and you experience that yourself. Caring Absolutely. For, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I... I um, I will say I was never a full-time caregiver for either my mother or my grandmother. My hat is off to the many, many people across the country today who are doing that. 
throughout that time I worked I was a professional working long hours I had kids in there um, but all of us and I'm, I am one of six siblings in my family we all did various things and even with everybody working together pulling on this figuring out what to do um, you know my uh, father had saved a lot of money to help pay for my mother's care but even with like a lot of good luck, a lot of got a, a lot of good luck, a lot of people to share the burden, mm -hmm. siblings, resources, and stuff. It's really hard. It's really hard to figure out how to support somebody, and what what will benefit her. What does she want? You know, like making the decision to have my mom not stay at home after a while was really hard. But I think that's what she wanted. She actually didn't want to keep staying home. And that was kind of a shocker for me. I kind of thought, oh, everybody must want to stay home. Actually, my mom didn't. Mm. She could wanted you, to go to assisted living. So, Could you tell our uh, listeners the story of the pacemaker? I think that's such a great example of how even when you're a physician and even when you have the support, it's so complicated. It's really tough. I mean, that for me was also a turning point in the way I thought about dementia. So my mom was uh, living in a nursing home and had, well, when she moved in, she had pretty moderate and ultimately severe dementia. Um, she could still speak a bit. She had trouble walking. She really couldn't dress herself. She had needed uh, help with all kinds of activities, ultimately even feeding herself, but certainly toileting, dressing, getting about, all of that kind of stuff. So she was fairly far along in the course of her dementia. And she developed these funny kind of spells where she would sort of sit in her chair. She clearly, she wasn't attending to the things happening around her. It would last for like a minute, two minutes. She was kind of shaking. She couldn't speak. You couldn't get her to look at you or anything. So. Oh, that was kind of terrifying. What's that? Is that a seizure? Is it some kind of heart attack? Is it, you know, who knew what? Um, so lots of trips to the emergency room back and forth. Nobody could figure it out. And then on one of them, really, when they had sort of checked her out and were getting ready to send her back, somebody had left a heart monitor on and they looked at it and they caught examples of what's called heart block. So your heart is basically an electrical gadget and it needs electrical conduction to tell the heart basically to go you know beat dummy and um, you know has to get this like signal going beat okay beat again keep beating um, and if you look at the electrical tracing of what's up with the heart you can see oh whoa this one's not working there's a big pause there and it's not coming out right that's not okay that's not a regular rhythm and this is not going anywhere good this is not compatible with life when it's when the pauses are getting prolonged and severe you can obviously Bad tell happened, yeah. yeah that's not good you don't want that so um that's what pacemakers do Pacemakers are a little piece of hardware. You take it in, you install it, it kind of nestles down next to somebody's heart, and it takes over that normal biological function of saying, beat, dummy, beat again, beat and beat, and this rhythm, beat nice and smooth, boom, 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 great. Um, so that's what the pacemaker does. And they, uh, you know, the cardiologist came in and said, this is fantastic. We've solved it. This is great. We're going to give your mom a pacemaker. Well, so as it happens, my mother's mother had dementia. 
my mother's mother also had six kids. And this was a long time ago, back in, I guess, the 80s. And uh, she got a pacemaker. And all six of her children totally regretted agreeing to that. It was the worst decision they ever made. They felt terrible. What it meant is that my grandmother lived to the very, very end of her dementia, mm. pretty miserably. Mm-hmm. So my mother's feeling and that of all of her siblings was, don't do that to me. If I see a way out of this, if I get dementia especially, and somebody tells me, well, you also have X, you also have heart block, you also have cancer, you also have something else, let's go with something else. It takes a long time to die of dementia, and you will die of it. It's a fatal illness, and it's not a particularly great way to go. So we had a huge debate, you know. And your mom had been clear. Totally clear. She did not want to Don't go do like her mom did. Exactly. She was articulate about that, and you knew that going in. And at the same time, I don't know, you know, I'm from a big family. Those of you mm-hmm. from big families will recognize we're never on the same page at the mm-hmm. same time. <laughs> Got lots of opinions. And among my siblings, there were those who thought, yeah, but she's not saying no now. She doesn't remember that. She looks pretty comfortable. It's such a small procedure. What's the big deal? You can do it. And my mother had also appointed me as her healthcare proxy. So I thought, you know, this really bothers me, this thing with the pacer. A lot of cardiologists say, and by the way, the, the consensus guidance documents in cardiology now say, don't do this. But they used to say, and by the way, once we put it in, we can never stop it. Mm-hmm. So that's where we were. So I thought, okay, that's just wrong. As a bioethicist, I know you need patient consent or surrogate consent if you're going to do a procedure. If you put something in, I should be able to say, we don't want that thing anymore. Turn it off. Mm -hmm. And I should work on that. I should be able to do that for my mother, and we should solve it later. But I, I wasn't comfortable with that. I knew it was a bad idea. I was much better. I was much more comfortable saying when she had her wits about her, She really thought hard about this. She had a lot of experience. She had a lot of information on this question. And she said, don't do it. So, but my mother, you know, was demented. So the doctor comes in and she basically couldn't understand what he was saying for most Mm -hmm. of it. Saying, well, whatever you want, dear, that's fine. Sure, yes, I like doctors. Do what you want, doctor. Mm -hmm. So when the doctor came and said, okay, I'm here to take you for the pacemaker, she like snapped to it. And, you know, talk about a terrier. That is absolutely my <laughs> my mother's spirit animal. She basically yapped at him, you know, like, what are you talking about? You guys do too much stuff to old people. Don't do that to me. So she didn't get a pacemaker. Basically, she saved herself. She was always a force of nature. And she, from the depths of dementia, stepped in and saved herself from the pacemaker. And I think, frankly, it was one of the best things that we ever did for her in terms of her dementia care. It meant that she didn't have to have a decreasing ability to do things that gave her joy. It was a totally painless progression where she had dementia, so she wasn't worried about it. She wasn't frightened about having heart block. She didn't know she had heart block, Mm. so no anxiety ahead of time. The episodes themselves were clearly totally painless, and she didn't remember it after. So it was a disease that to her was completely invisible. And in the end, you know, after some months or so, she did die of heart block with dementia. And I think that's fine. I think in medicine, 
it's not just the larger community and the government that needs to think about dementia care, it's medicine too. What are we doing? Are we really helping people? Medicine is supposed to help people. Just doing something because you can do it and not looking at the larger picture, what is that about? Why do you need a pacemaker when you have a fatal illness? Mm -hmm. And heart block is not a bad way to go. I mean, I'm not saying it's always completely symptom free, but really when people die asleep in their beds at night, that's heart block. Mm -hmm. That sounds pretty good to me. Mm. If I had a fatal illness and I was well along and I knew no cures coming for me mm -hmm. and somebody said, well, you know, I do. Okay. Maybe there's this one possibility you could die comfortably in your sleep at mm -hmm. night. Who, I mean, who wouldn't take yeah, that? Seriously. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So why, why do we want to harass dying people who are advanced in years? And I'm not being ageist. I'm just saying, you know, she had a great life. Mm. Now she has a fatal illness. It's only going in one direction. She has another potentially fatal illness. Why do we need to intervene why here? Why are we prolonging the yeah. inevitable? Yeah, and making it, it worse. It really brings up this whole question of consent. Right. Well, that's a very tricky issue in dementia because among the things that having dementia does, it really, it robs you of the kind of, you know, refined cognitive skills where you can really think about, hmm, so you're telling me a 32% chance of this mm. and a 65% chance of that. I mean, that's not a calculation that frankly, a lot of people can make, including people with dementia. So you do have to think about what were this person's values? What did she say about it before? I mean, and my mother was very in the tiny minority of people who had actually made a clear comment about a specific treatment with good knowledge about what it meant. Mm -hmm. So I think we should do advanced directives, but they're, they're kind of problematic. I mean, mostly advanced directives are just a kind of rough guide map, kind of what are your values? What, what do you want? It can't really tell you for the most part about specific treatments, although if you do have ideas about specific treatments, that's fine too. Mm -hmm. So what would you like to say to our, our audience who are listening to this and maybe getting a little bit worried and uh, thinking, I need to do something? What is the first step for, for those of us who are you know, who do not have a dementia diagnosis, but who may want to be more thoughtful about the future for our partners, our family members, and ourselves? Mm -hmm. huh. I would say a couple of things. One is that think about what gives you joy and what things that give you joy you could take with you into the future. Then maybe you need to add a few. You know, maybe there are things that you love doing that aren't really going to be possible for you when you're 90 with or without dementia, but maybe there's some things that you love doing that you could take forward, or maybe you could adapt things you love to make them possible within dementia. So for me, you know, I, I love gardening. I mean, gardening is something that you can do with an incredibly keen mind. I mean, they're super gardeners and they're adding, you know, this kind of crystal and that, kind of, you know, changing the acidity of the soil. And okay, you can do it that way. You know what else you can do? You can sit in a garden and you can just look at things. And that's you just- You can smell things. Yeah, it's delightful. It's just like you could watch the, it's just like you could watch the birds are coming out and they've found that kind of, bush. love that thing. Look at the butterflies over there. Mm. I mean, you can do that in a way that is experiential and not cognitive. 
So what could you find? What would bring you joy? And how can you make that there for a future you? And if it's not there for a future you, maybe you need to do that for your community or your family. Maybe you need to build a garden, a community garden in your, in your family that would be great for people of all generations. You can take toddlers in there and show them how to stick seeds in the soil. And you can bring older people in there. You can bring people in in a wheelchair and have them sit and look and, and even participate and just enjoy being there. So maybe you could do that. I would do that. I would also think about not being so despairing. You know, we don't have anything that prevents or cures dementia, but it's also true that being kind to yourself, treating yourself in a healthy way, does seem to help with normal cognitive aging. So there are things we you can't control your genes, you know, and if you have a genetic risk for dementia, your odds are up. But if you live in a healthy way, at least you're not piling on additional stress to your neurons. So you know, do some thinking about healthy diet. And of course, this is tricky because there's a lot of fads and a lot of things like that out there. That's not what I mean. The best data is basically about the Mediterranean diet. And frankly, it's mostly stuff your grandmother probably would have told you. Eat your fruits and vegetables. You know, <laughs> um, fish is probably better than meat. Um, some meats are better than others. And, and think about being active. Um, get up and go for a walk. Um, be out in the world, get a dog, you know, mm -hmm. if you have a dog, your dog will walk you and mm. people will stop and talk and pat your dog and they'll mm. talk to you. So think about, um, think about what you can do to be healthier. And in fact, in terms of saying, the other thing I would say is there are a lot of tests and things available. I, you know, I personally don't recommend it. I don't think the information is that helpful. I mean, as an example, you could get tested for the APOE E4 gene, right? It's one of these risk factors for later old age onset dementia. And it'll tell you, if you have two copies of that gene, one from your mom and one from your dad, definitely your risk is higher. However, there's some stuff you should know about that. One, if you have a family history of dementia, like I do, I could tell you right now your risk is higher. You know, I can mm, give me the money for the, the test, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> Send me a check, I can tell you right now. Right. Um, so. The other thing is that the majority of people who have dementia are not positive for that gene. So if the test is negative, guess what you've learned? Zero. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you can learn that your risk is higher and that will tell you, you know what, you should have a healthy lifestyle. Again, mm -hmm. I can tell you that right mm -hmm. now. It goes all back to the same, yeah, uh, yeah directive, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I guess the original title for my book with the subtitle was Try a Little Tenderness. And uh -huh. I, I switched away from that because I didn't want to make it sound like all these caregivers and people like that had not thought of trying uh -huh. a little tenderness. Yes. But I really meant it towards yourself. Take mm -hmm. good care of yourself and think about being tender toward a future self that's not doing so well, that has dementia. What? What, how could you be kind to that person? You're and talking how, about self-compassion. Yes, exactly, exactly. And I think if you start there, it will be good for you, but it will also, frankly, I think, make you a better person. I think it will help you think about other people. So if there's not a nursing home in your community that you would like to go to, maybe you need to think about that. Maybe you should get on the board of your local nursing home. Maybe you should think about 
you know, alternative nursing homes. There's a lot of activity around better ways for people who need assistance and support to go. If you don't see what you would like to have in your community, maybe that's something you could work on. You know, if you're doing it because that's what you'd like for yourself, but frankly, along the way, you'll help a lot of people. So I'd love to see that happen. That would just really make me joyful. I'd love, and I do think people are beginning to do that. So that's sort of what I'm, that's what I'm in favor of, trying a little tenderness, starting with yourself, but also thinking about what could you do in the larger world that would take us down that road. And embracing all of your ages, your entire lifespan, not saying that, oh, now I'm wrinkled and I can't play tennis, um, so I'm useless and, you know, buying that sort of cultural stigma about, you know, if you're older, you're invisible, you're not productive, all of this stuff, but really embracing your entire lifespan. I agree. I mean, mm-hmm. when you were little, you wore diapers, and nobody thought the worse of you for that. It was just part of the normal age range. And I think if we looked at, you know, the sort of horrible, embarrassing specter of being incontinent old in old age, if we looked at it as a, yeah, so what? We'd probably, first of all, have better diapers and better, you know, sort of more invisible, more attractive, easier to use stuff mm-hmm. so that people who are incontinent wouldn't feel like, oh, my God, this is the worst thing that ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let's get on the engineering side of that. Let's think about what we need, because you know what? Mm-hmm. It's a thing that happens. It just happens. It doesn't mean you're a valueless person. It doesn't mean you're, you know, repugnant um, any more than it does with, with toddlers. They're, toddlers are adorable. And okay, maybe toddlers are more adorable than the elderly. I, I'm, you know, I'm heading in the elderly direction. I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure that I was cuter at two than I will be at 92. <laughs> so that, Depends okay. on who's looking. That's true. That's true. But um, I just, yeah, I like the idea of embracing every age. And we all need some kind of support and assistance, unless you really want to go be a monk and live on top of a mountain, um, you know, which is not an option that's really either available or appealing to many of us, you will be interdependent with other people. And that's fine. Let's figure out how to do it better. Let's deal Mm -hmm. with it. Mm -hmm. So I, I like your idea about embracing all of the ages and figuring out what it means to live well in that particular span of life. Boy, this is so much food for thought, um, and I think our our listeners will really benefit from, you know, wow, this is so different. I think about your idea of being in the garden with the butterfly bush and smelling and how it could not be more different than being in shackles or being, you know, uh, yeah ostracized or condemned or punished what a beautiful what a beautiful visual that is thank you so much for your time today tia and and talking about this book where can people find dementia reimagined uh lots of places uh it's certainly on amazon um which is fine but all of the other major booksellers um, we'll have it. You can certainly order it online. Um, it is released on April 2nd. You can order it now, but it'll be shipped um, in a couple of weeks if you do that. And if you just Google uh, Tia Powell and Dementia Reimagined, you should be able to get right there. At least I hope you can. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you so much. It's a fascinating discussion with you today. Thank you. It's really been fun talking with you. 
Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at nicolechristina.com. And please consider becoming a patron of the show. You will get access to exclusive bonuses and you will be part of the Zestful Aging community. Keep us going strong. Go to patreon.com slash Zestful Aging. See you next time for another episode of Zestful Aging.